This is Your Partners in Pain, a podcast that aims to bring together those who live with pain, healthcare providers who treat chronic pain, and researchers working on topics that affect people living with pain. This podcast is a must-listen for anyone experiencing pain or anyone trying to help those who live with it. Your Partners in Pain is presented by the Saskatchewan Pain Society, also known as SAS Pain, And I'm your host, Jessica Jack. Each episode, we are going to speak to Saskatchewan-based healthcare providers and researchers who have information and education to share about pain science and pain care. We are also going to speak with everyday people as they share their incredible stories of living with pain and the techniques they've used to help manage it and live well. It is important to note that the information presented in this podcast represents the opinions of the host and the guests that appear on the show and not that of SAS pain. The content presented should not be taken as direct health care advice, but for informational purposes only. Because each individual is unique, please consult your healthcare provider for any questions or concerns you have, or before you incorporate any of the ideas presented in this podcast into your own treatment plan. In episode 11, we're diving into the impacts of intersectionality or how different aspects of who you are can influence pain experiences by talking to Erin Beckwell. Erin has more than 40 years of lived experience with chronic pain and also works with people in pain through her career as a social worker, as a researcher with pain projects like Improving Pain in Saskatchewan, and as an instructor at the University of Regina. Today, we'll be hearing about Erin's experiences as someone who identifies as both queer and fat, and how both of those aspects of who she is have changed the way people address her pain and how she deals with her pain. In this conversation, we hope to shed some light on how the differences that make us who we are can interact with pain in all kinds of ways, and to leave you with the message that it's okay to be you, no matter how much pain you feel. Okay, well, thanks for being here, Erin. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Yeah, I'm happy to chat. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. So um, for those who don't know, which I guess is everyone in our audience, can you explain a little bit about what pain condition you live with? Yeah, I can. It's a little bit of a a challenging question to answer, uh, partly because I have this interesting, unique mashup of arthritis with some autoimmune conditions and um, most almost all of them I I don't fit a nice neat tidy diagnostic profile so I'm atypical and idiopathic in everything uh, which also just fits me quite fine Uh, but my diagnoses change a lot because I'll be like oh maybe now it's this or maybe this fits better but most days I usually just say I have arthritis Um, and most of the time my pain is more of a challenge for me to manage than my arthritis on its own uh, because my pain affects me every single day, whereas my arthritis um, might not uh, really interfere with my life in a lot of ways. That sounds kind of complicated to live with. Um, So what's it like trying to live with basically an evolving set of diagnoses like that? Uh, It's, it was harder um, earlier in the journey and um, yeah, like it, it gets challenging when it's 
kind of a moving target. Like I don't always know uh, what the plan is and and it can feel a little bit like we're winging it, uh, my healthcare team and I, um, which thankfully in many ways I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, but it's been unsettling at times and it can be challenging to talk to others about it when it's so, you know, oh, so what do you have now? Oh, well, like, do you still have this? Um, when it, I don't think people always understand those complicated parts that mean, you know, well, last year I was saying I have rheumatoid arthritis and now the, the consensus is it's psoriatic arthritis. Like, and really in my lived experience, those things don't make huge difference. Um, but sometimes they're confusing for people to follow along with and keep up. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I, especially people who maybe don't have that kind of grounded knowledge of pain from their own lived experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds to me a little bit like you're talking about labels and the importance of labeling a condition. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts you can share about that. Yeah, and I think a lot about labels, partly because of my background and what I do for a living, but also because of my lived experience. And and labels have been incredibly liberating um, and oppressive and restrictive all at the same time. And so I went years um, experiencing pain without ever hearing anyone use the phrase chronic pain around me. Um, I didn't think it applied to me. Um, because I'd had all these brilliant healthcare providers and others involved in my care since I was really young. And they said nothing about my pain other than to assess it, you know, on a scale of one to 10, the thing all of us with pain um, dread (laughs) is trying to quantify our pain on that damn pain scale. But um, it, it just wasn't a thing. And so when finally it was actually a friend of mine who said, well, with chronic pain, it's, it makes sense that you're struggling like this. And I was like, well, no, I don't have chronic pain. And she's like, you've had pain almost every day of your whole life. I don't know how much more chronic you can get than that. And I just, for whatever reason, created this barrier between me and that label. Um, and partly because I don't think I'd had permission from my healthcare team to identify that way, which was a really interesting experience. Um, and I mean, labels are, are a big part of my life for lots of reasons. I mean, they're a big part of a lot of our lives, but um, I happen to also be a human who has a few identities or labels that don't fit that sort of dominant or mainstream or, or what's assumed in people or what's thought of as um, sort of normal or typical. And so adding in pain to being uh, you know, I'm queer, I'm fat. Um, and, and those are labels that I do not think of as disparaging at all. Uh, that's very much parts of me that I'm working hard to celebrate and to see as um, really the uniqueness and the richness in my lived experience come from so many of those parts of me, including my pain. Uh, but yeah, labels are complicated and messy. Um, and generally speaking, I don't love pathologizing everything and diagnosing everything as a a disease or a condition. And yet in the world we live in, that's kind of central to getting the help we need and being able to even talk about our experience. 
Absolutely. And uh, wow, what a complicated relationship with labels. Um, and I really appreciate how you can put that into words, because I think a lot of people have that same kind of complicated relationship with labels. But, you know, not everybody knows how to express it that way. Um, and on that same note, it sounds like uh, realizing that you could give labels to yourself rather than waiting for other people to give them to you is a bit of a liberating experience. Absolutely. And, um, and I think that, yeah, that liberation comes from just claiming it as mine and say, well, I don't know, I have a right to say this is part of my life. And, and, um, but conversely, I also have a right to say, no, I don't want to be identified that way. If, if those labels come along too, um, it's yeah, labels are just such a messy and complicated thing. And I've spent so much of my life trying to be more than my pain or more than my diseases. <laughs> um, and I spent a lot of energy not wanting to be viewed as just the sick kid because I so often felt like the sick kid growing up. Um, you know, I, I was like, no, I'm not sitting out on school activities. No, I'm not going to not do sports. In fact, I'm going to do them with more intensity <laughs> than others, uh, just to sort of overcompensate somehow for that sense that I was somehow less than. Um, but then there was also that sense that, okay, this, this isn't just me being um, dramatic or attention seeking or making stuff up. This is real. That when you have a label for something, especially that comes from someone like a physician or, you know, in a position of authority in our world that says, no, this is legit. We have a name for it. It's called this. Um, that can be huge for people who've often felt like maybe I am, you know, we start to really feel like we are crazy. Like, maybe I am just making this up. Maybe if every test has been normal, it is all in my head. It isn't real. Um, so it can be so um, just monumental to get that, have that moment where somebody gives you words to describe something you're struggling with or even something you're not struggling with, but a part of your life. Absolutely. And and so when you had um, that friend describe your pain as chronic pain and it kind of clicked for you in your head, um, did you go back to your healthcare team and tell them, oh, hey, I think this is chronic pain? And yeah. how did that go? Um, it was interesting because I was mad at first. Sure. I was like, how come no one said this yet? Why hasn't people talked to me about pain management? Um, it's all been about managing the underlying conditions. Um, but there's no one had educated me about pain and how it works. Mm -hmm. I suspect because a lot of my healthcare providers at the time didn't understand how pain works. Right. And uh, so we're maybe uncomfortable talking about it. Um, but yeah, I went back a little bit feisty, which I tend to be sometimes with my healthcare providers. And I was like, seriously, why has this not come up before? And um, thankfully, I have created over many, many years, a great team that can handle my feistiness without getting really defensive. And uh, they were like, yeah, you're right. We, we dropped the ball. Like, um, and, and we talked a bit about how their training is very much about, you know, assess, diagnose and treat. And they were focused in on, okay, you have this. So the treatment options for it are these things. That one isn't working. Try this one. That one. And never, no one was thinking about the big picture, which is this is a person who has had pain almost every day of her life since birth, pretty much as long as I can remember. And 
that probably means something more than just you have this condition, we need to try this medication or this other intervention for it. Um, and, and there wasn't a sense that there was any need to even consider something beyond these very specific, you know, illness or, you know, syndrome plus this. And uh, I think that's so much though, that medical model, right. Doesn't allow us the opportunity to step back and look beyond our little slice <laughs> um, whatever that is. And so my rheumatologist, they'd look at my joints and, you know, I had a, a another, I have an endocrinologist who looks at, you know, often is very focused on my blood work. And I have a GP who's interested in other things. And, and I think it was just so fragmented that only my people who knew me personally could look at it in a more holistic way. Right. Wow. Well, I mean, thank you to that friend of yours, right? That I know, said right? the magic words, basically. <laughs> Honestly, in the moment, I felt really a bit dumb that I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, that it hadn't come to me. Um, and I hadn't been, I was a little bit ashamed that I hadn't advocated for myself because that's been, I mean, I was raised in the health system by a very strong, like my mom is a wicked advocate and she was like a, a, like a dog with a bone when it came to getting me, um, services. And, and so I learned from her, um, and had this sense of like, I have a right to know what I have a right for you to understand me. So it, it felt a little bit strange to be like, how did I miss this piece? <laughs> how did this not come to me sooner? Which I know, of course, once you step away from it, it's like, that's absurd. I'm living it. It's not, and it's not my job. Um, to see that. And, uh, I, I don't have the perspective to see it. So I have nothing to be ashamed about. And yet that's how I felt was kind of like, Oh, I'm a terrible patient. And then I didn't use the right words to help my healthcare team name what's going on for me. Right. Which you now know is obviously a false narrative, but you know, that, that kind of internalizing of, of those sorts of experiences is really difficult. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like in this situation, self-advocacy was kind of the antidote, you know, to use a medical term, uh, to, to the problems that you were having. Yeah. So, you know, related to self-advocacy, um, I was wondering if you could tell me or tell us, I guess, a little bit more about your, your personal story uh, about who you are and how that interacts with your pain. Cause I know there's a lot of self-advocacy there too. Yeah, for sure. I, um, yeah, I often say, I feel like I was, you know, came into the world hurting and, uh, I, yeah, I struggled with health and, and not just one thing. It was like, it always it seemed like something was, you know, I'm going to the doctor for this or trying to explore whether this is the problem. And, and it was like, um, I felt like, uh, and I kind of joke a little bit that my, my quality time with my mom was car rides to Saskatoon to go to RUH, to go to specialists. Um, Cause that's what was special about my childhood was getting to go to the city when my sisters didn't, they had to stay home with my dad and um, I got to miss school, but I also loved school. So I hated that. Right. And, um, but being a kid who grew up with pain, who grew up with health issues really did shape um, who I have become as a human, of course. And um, it was really interesting though, because of course I was a kid in the seventies and eighties and pain management, especially in kids, wasn't really talked about and understood very much. And so even I remember things that my 
Um, I was told things my parents said to me, and I'm sure they heard things from healthcare providers as parents of a kid in pain, um, what they should be doing. And, and I think there's a real sense that talking about it and acknowledging it made it worse. So don't acknowledge it. Um, and I, I also live in a family, <laughs> grew up in a family where, uh, you know, just sort of always doing more is kind of our culture. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and so the two kid together was quite an experience of, you know, like I said earlier, uh, you know, I'm not just going to stay involved in activities, I'm going to run the activities, or I'm going to push myself even harder than other kids were. And um, I occasionally did some damage to myself because of that sort of persistence, like, no, this pain isn't stopping me from anything. And it's like, well, some days it should have. <laughs> and I didn't let it, um, which which was probably all told good. Um, but it has also fed into now as an adult, I struggle so much to slow down mm. and pace myself and listen to my body because I learned really effectively how to ignore it, how mm. to pretend it was fine. And um, I also I mean, grew up in a family where when people ask how you're doing, if you're not OK, you don't say that. You say, no, I'm fine. I'm good. Mm-hmm. And I remember being coached by my parents on, you know, especially when adults would ask how I was doing, I wasn't to actually tell them a real answer. It was, they're just being polite. You tell them you're fine. They don't want to hear that you're actually not okay. Mm-hmm. And so it really created a lot of struggle for me, especially as I got older and was in relationships and, you know, trying to talk to partners and, um, but also as I got into university and the work world, like I was like, no, I'm not going to tell my boss I need any special treatment. That's how I thought of it at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't need any accommodation. I'm fine. I can do more than the average person. So, and yet there were times when my pain really started to get in the way of my ability to do the work that I love, which is social work. Um, and where I would cope in really unhelpful ways. <laughs> Because I couldn't just say, I'm in too much pain to get this done today, or I need to take a day, a sick day. Um, I wore it as a great badge of honor that I didn't use sick time and I didn't take holidays and I was so dedicated. And it really came from that drive when I was younger to just be normal and not be defined by my pain or my sickness, either one or both. Yeah. Absolutely. And oh boy, in my own pain experiences, I really identify with that because that the vulnerability that comes along with admitting that things are not okay and that you need help can sometimes be the most terrifying experience of having pain. Sometimes I think that that was scarier than, you know, crying on the floor because I thought I was going to die from pain. Yeah. 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 And, and I think it's also though, like that vulnerability is a piece of it. Um, but there's also just a sense that like, I wanted people to see me for me, not Mm -hmm. as some like, you know, Oh, that's the sick kid. (laughs) And, and I felt that like I was just the sick kid in a lot of settings. And I, so I worked really hard to overcome that, but also like the challenge with asking for help or accepting help, or even being open about how we're struggling with chronic pain is there often isn't an easy thing. There isn't anything people can do in a tangible way anyway, Mm -hmm. Um, which sometimes means like, what's the point of saying, 
yeah, you know, I, I'm not okay. And there's nothing you can do about it. And there's probably not a lot I can do about it, which of course is also not always true. Right. But part of what comes from, I think, Laura, what I've experienced from my journey with pain, but also my, you know, struggling with identity around my queerness and around my body in general and my body size and weight um, has just been sort of wrapping my head around the fact that it's not either or. And those rigid binaries um, that either I'm, you know, the sick kid or I'm the overachieving always going out and doing everything kit. I can't be somewhere in between and I can't be different every day, um, which has been really challenging as an adult to sort of be like, okay, I got to take it not even just one day at a time, but sometimes one minute at a time and, and accept that I may feel horrible in the morning, but by lunchtime, I might be having a decent day. And then again, by supper time, I might want to go curl up in a ball somewhere, which can make being around me challenging it can make being me challenging but I think often about you know my wife my daughter and and you know I it's just living with uh, someone with chronic pain it, there's not really a lot of consistency and predictability in it mm-hmm. um, which when you you know care very deeply about people you want to be able to say yeah we're going to do that tomorrow or absolutely after work Yep, we're going to cook supper together when I might be like, we're ordering pizza because I do not have it in me to stand in the kitchen and cook supper with you right now, Um, which can be so hard. Absolutely. Oh, that kind of flexibility that's necessary for living, either living with the chronic pain or living with someone who has chronic pain can absolutely be challenging. Um, and, and similarly, it sounds like, um, you, you know, your relationship with your body in relation to pain can also be challenging on the road to getting to where you are now. So I was wondering if you could speak a little to that. I mean, of course, having all sorts of health issues and then, you know, having that contribute to chronic pain, you spend a lot of time focusing on your body, but also in a really kind of paradoxical and weird way, a lot of time trying to not focus on your body. Mm. So it's this weird, like mind bending experience where um, your life is often very centered on your physical body. And yet you're trying to almost dissociate from your body because there's pain and discomfort and sometimes just mysteries that nobody can solve um, that are kind of scary. Like, I don't know what the, oh God, what's that Mm -hmm. feeling I have in my knee right now? Is that something new? Oh no. And so it's this really weird thing of being like, okay, I, I don't want it to be all about my body. I'm more than just my body. And yet how my body functions is so central to every, I mean, it's for all of us, but I think um, one of the, the pieces of privilege that folks who haven't had a lot of health issues um, don't always see is how, how much privilege is attached to not having to be like scanning your body 24 hours a day to see where you're at pain wise and where is it worse? And, you know, what, what do you need to do? And is this a sign I need to slow down and stop what I'm doing right now? Or is this something I can power through? And a lot of energy goes to that. And then you, and then you add in, I mean, for me, I identify as, as fat and it's taken a long time to be okay with that word. Um, Certainly didn't grow up in a world where that was, that was a good thing. Uh, that was very insulting to be called fat. 
And so as I became a teenager, I was a really active young person, again, in spite of, and, and often just, you know, to sort of give a big middle finger to my pain, I would push myself. And so it's very active. I think all things considered, you know, it was pretty healthy, but my body started changing, of course, like everybody's does in puberty. And um, there was a lot of focus all of a sudden on my weight and how my weight, you know, I had a doctor tell me, you know, your joints won't be able to hold up that much weight, which is like, according to the laws of physics, an outright lie. Yeah. Um, And yet I was like, maybe 14 years old, 14 year old young women sitting in your clinic. And that's what, and it was a male physician Mm. who said, yeah, you know, if you keep gaining weight like this, your joints will not be able to hold your body up anymore. Oh my! And I, I actually was like, oh my God, my fatness is destroying my body. Like Mm -hmm. will overwhelm the capacity of my joints. And there's still, maybe not that sort of explicitly stated, but that narrative is so prevalent, especially in the arthritis community, um, that that's a treatment or an intervention that all of us should do is lose weight. And I learned finally that focusing on weight for me was making it worse, not better. Um, and that every time I tried to lose weight, I ended up fatter than when I started, which is a pretty common experience. Mm -hmm. And that focusing on things that I enjoy doing things that help me feel good, um, was, was way more helpful for me than focusing on a number on a scale or the size of my clothes or, you know, how many roles I have somewhere. Uh, but it was really hard to accept that I might be moving more regularly, but it's, it might not mean I, I, my body gets smaller or I lose fat in certain parts. Um, and that, that doesn't mean it's not worth doing anymore. Right. Yeah. And, and so I've had to really unravel uh, my relationship with movement in particular, because I grew up very active in a very athletic family. And I was like, I considered myself an athlete. I love, and I still do love sports and um, stuff. I can't do most of the stuff I love. And so finding exercise that doesn't feel like some kind of torture for Mm. me, it's been really hard because it's often so strongly associated with changing how you look. Um, and, and, you know, for people in a body like mine, that's, that's, you know, considered morbidly obese, medically speaking, I hate that language. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's like, uh, bodies like mine, the assumption is if we go to the gym or you're doing some activity, it's to shrink your body. And if that isn't why you're doing it, it should be why you're doing it. And so it's really been complicated trying to, and then you throw in the pain piece and it's like, do I slow down? Cause this hurts or do I keep going because movement is going to help my pain in the long run? So it's just, yeah, it's quite a, and then getting out of my head and actually enjoying movement, you know, becomes quite challenging. Absolutely. Well, and it sounds like self-awareness is really such a central part of all of this is, you know, being aware of how you feel in your body and then separating that from how other people feel about your body, essentially. Yeah. And it's huge, right? Because I I think, you know, we live in a world that really promotes the idea that our own sense of self should be at least partly determined by the perceptions of others and whether people think we're beautiful or, you know, the right size or whatever it is. Um, 
And I think in a lot of ways, though, being queer has helped with that um, because there's room in that in, in the community to push the boundaries on gender, to push the boundaries on all sorts of things, um, which has meant I, I feel less pressure, I think, in a lot of ways um, to, to conform because there's so much diversity in the community. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't issues and that we aren't all subject to, you know, all the pressures everyone else has. But, you know, for me, it started out with things like I shaved my head multiple times and, you know, quit shaving my legs and doing things like just wearing clothes that are, I liked, not clothes that were I was supposed to wear because of my age or my gender or whatever. And all of that fit together with like, it's maybe okay for me to use my cane, which is one of the hardest things for me because it makes my invisible disability that I can work really hard and hide immediately visible. And as a fat person who uses a cane, like I've had people say, like make horrible comments to me um, because the assumption is, well, I'm using a cane because I'm fat. Um, and, and I mean, even if I were, shut up. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like I have struggled with things like using my accessible parking placard, using my cane. And as much as I've worked on this stuff, it still is so hard. Like my physio, every time I see her, she's like, and how often are you using your caner? And usually the answer is not at all. I don't even know where it is (laughs) Um, because it is still one of those big, like I need, I have a, a really deep need to look like I'm okay, or be able to choose who gets to see that I'm not okay. And who doesn't. Yeah. Wow. Oh, what a complicated situation, but I'm so heartened to hear that being part of the queer community was, you know, a space that allowed you to accept parts of who you were that, you know, weren't acceptable in other places. So as a fellow queer person, I I'm really excited to hear that. And I was hoping you could maybe tell me a little bit more about how your identity as a queer person intersects with your identity as someone who lives with pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been interesting. And, and when I was preparing for today and thinking about that, it was, it was at first I was like, well, I think today it doesn't really impact it. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what? It, it still does. And it certainly was more of a challenge in the early days. Like I've been, I'm heading on 30 years out of the closet. So it's, things have changed a lot in 30 <laughs> years, a lot, which is amazing. Like to think about how different things are now than they were when I came out. It's just, it blows my mind in a lot of ways because I couldn't even envision a lot of the things that are just normal now. Uh, back then. And especially, I mean, I grew up in a tiny community, um, little farming community where, you know, queerness wasn't exactly seen as a legit option that was going to go well for anyone. Um, And it was really hard in the early days. And so um, early on, I, I would see doctors and they would, you know, maybe ask a question about, you know, are you living alone? Are you living with somebody? Or they might ask a question like, oh, you just making conversation. What are you doing on the weekend? Or, um, and then as I started to have more serious relationships with partners, they would come with me to the doctor and be like, Oh, your friend is here with you. Right. And so it became this constant like assessment of, 
is this a person who can handle me correcting them and saying, actually, not just my friend, uh, that's my partner? Um, or do I need to just go, yeah, yeah, it's nice to have someone with you for these appointments? Like, are you okay? And, and especially, I think, with chronic pain, when energy is limited, right? And, and a lot of us talk about spoons and, and such, right? Like, how do we manage our, our limited capacity and, and make decisions that allow us to do what we really want to do with our time and expending energy debating about whether to tell my healthcare providers that my partner was female or not, um, was something that kind of ticked me off a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> but you know, one of the, the big moments for me was in my sort of mid twenties, I started doing drag and yeah. it was, it was fun. I loved it. It was challenging. Um, it was a great source of exercise. Like we did lots of like super choreographed group numbers. And so I spent like four or five nights a week rehearsing or performing. Um, and it was amazing. I loved it. It was a community. Um, it was, I actually incorporated, interestingly enough, my drag character, Nikolai Yusikov, um, <laughs> often walked with a cane. Oh, wow. Yeah. Disabled yeah. drag. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, me and me and my real life couldn't walk with a cane, but uh, but Nikolai could, oh. and it was just so fascinating. But then you know I'd have my physio or my um, you know rheumatologist. Well, what are you doing for exercise? Well, for about three or four years of my life, the number one source of exercise in my life was drag. <laughs> Right. And so how comfortable am I explaining? And so for a while, they, I was like, actually, I'm part of a kind of like a musical theater group. And there was this sort of vagueness to it that didn't really align with how I talk about my life. And so they could probably tell I was holding back some information. But uh, that, again, like thinking about those things or when I got um, uh, my ex-wife and I separated and I was not okay. My pain went through the roof because I was stressed all the time. Um, so it was impacting my health. I was looking at taking a sick leave from work because I couldn't handle, um, you know, just coping with my pain and the treatment I was on was really just taking a number, like just doing a number on me. So, you know, my doctor really wanted to know like what else is going on in your life and what can you let go of that might reduce your stress and, and I had to really think long and hard about how comfortable I was saying, okay, like I'm going through basically a divorce right now. <laughs> and yes, I know my wife and I were not legally married, <laughs> but I still called her my wife. And uh, it was pretty much the same as any marriage. Um, and I just really worried about that. And finally decided I had to tell her because I mean, things were kind of crumbling for me at that point in life. And, and I just was like, I've, if she can't handle this, then maybe I need to find a new doctor. Right. 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 And she was amazing Aww. and has ever since been phenomenal um, oh. about things, even about stuff. Like my wife and I um, tried to ha have, have kids and I was trying to get pregnant. And so going through a whole bunch of like hormone shots and fertility treatments and stuff. And she was so just like, okay, I need to check how this medication might affect that. And I need to make sure that we're, and, and it was just so great. And I can't imagine if I still was debating whether I could be open with her about everything, how that process would have been too. Sure. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, 
obviously, you know, it, it sounds like who you are has really had an impact on how you've had to manage your pain and how you've had to present your pain to other people. And it sounds like that's, you know, you had mentioned privilege earlier and those debates that you're having about when to, you know, be open with people about your sexuality, about your gender identity, about your, your pain itself, um, has been a really, you know, a a thing that most people don't have to deal with. You know, it's, it's their, it's hetero privilege to not have to debate whether to tell your doctor about your partner or not. Mm -hmm. So, well, I mean, that's a thank you so much for sharing all of that. And so based on your rather extensive experience, I was wondering, <laughs> I promise I didn't call you old. It's extensive experience. <laughs> I'm well seasoned. Yes. Well, yes. You're, you're wealthy in years. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you found to be either the most helpful or the least helpful in, in managing your pain in your specific context? Well, it's funny because my answer to what's most helpful is something that if someone had told me uh, this 15, 20 years ago, I would have probably thrown every like curse word I could think of at them (laughs) and hated them for the rest of my life. Because Uh what I have learned now in my well-seasoned state is that for me, and this may not work for other people, but I had to really do some tough work on me. Um, just in terms of that, like some of it was social conditioning from the family I grew up in and the community I grew up in and, um, really say like being okay, um, with people knowing that I have pain, uh, with people seeing that I am in pain. (laughs) Um, because of course, even when my pain is quite severe, like there are things, if you know me well, you can tell, um, but people, you know, my students, uh, people I've worked with and such. I can at least make it so it's not something we have to talk about. They may be like, oh, something's up with her, but I don't know what it is. And so for me, acceptance has been the thing. Mm. And just coming to terms with the fact that this isn't probably going to go away, um, that it's here to stay. And that meant letting go of the quest to find the thing that was going to cure me, um, which has been hard because some people in my life haven't come to that acceptance yet. And it's hard when you've come to that or trying to (laughs) live in a way that's like, no, this is, this is my life. And and I need to figure out how to live now, not when my pain goes away, not when we figure out the treatment that's going to make it all better, because that will likely not happen. Um, And if it does cool, but I can't sit around waiting for that to happen and not living the life that I want to live. and, and for me, that would be pain limiting my life in all the ways that I never wanted it to. <laughs> um, and I, and I just, and it doesn't mean like I went through a stretch about six or seven years ago where I nearly died from pain. Um, the pain didn't kill me. It was, I was just so desperate to make my pain stop because it had been so bad for so long that I was like circling around all sorts of creative plans for suicide. And um, most pain folks have uh, lots of sort of options for that, right? In our own homes, right? I had bottles and bottles of opioids. And um, yeah, I was just like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, This isn't a life for me. And I felt like I was spending all my energy and time 
that I had going to doctors or, you know, trying to do things for my pain. And I was spending none of my energy doing things I actually wanted to do, um, which of course I was angry and I was sad and, and realizing that acceptance isn't just about saying, well, there's nothing I can do and kind of giving in or giving up, which is, I think how I felt about it before was like that it would be giving up and I don't give up. And so, no, I can't accept this. Um, But really seeing it as meeting myself where I'm at Mm -hmm. and being able to be like, okay, this is who I am. This is what is. (laughs) And how do I build a life where I can still do things I like? And those might look different. And and there will be things I can't do anymore. And that's, but that I need to grieve those, Um, not just do them anyway and suffer the consequences, which I did for a long time, or just be angry all the time that I can't do things I love. And, um, but to try to find um, a way to cope. And so I have a background just professionally in harm reduction. Uh, I've done a lot of work with folks who use, you know, substances and, um, have used them myself. And so looking at how do I take a harm reduction approach to pain and to my own well-being in general, beyond pain, right? Um, and it really has made a huge difference for me. Like um, it also could be described as self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, just realizing that I'm a perfectionist, well, a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> and uh, speaking of labels, and um it's really hard to let go of that standard. Um, and even in terms of being, you know, for a long time, I was like, I'm going to be the model pain patient because that's how I coped with everything. Like I'll show them, you know, I'm going to be the most exceptional or the most, and I just would hold myself to these standards that were unachievable and then often feel great shame and guilt and a sense of failure when I can't do it. So um, really finding a way to say, no, this is what today is. And, and what does that mean? And um, yeah, uh, it's really the, it was accepting that pain is going to affect my life forever and I don't have to like it. Um, But it's also meant, you know, much like other struggles that humans go through, it's brought me gifts um, Mm -hmm. as well. People into my life, including you, um, (laughs) that if I didn't hurt, I wouldn't have probably met you, which is kind of wild when you start thinking about things like that. Um, but also just thinking about like, it's brought a sense of patience, um, and, uh, understanding of how ableist our world is Mm -hmm. and how much privilege is still wrapped up in being able to at least partially, um, render my disability invisible when I, kind of wanted to, (laughs) um, or thinking I can do that. And a lot of folks with disability don't have that. They can't even do that. Can't even think about it. Um, but this, there's been so much grief and loss and trauma work baked into that acceptance that it's really about going to therapy (laughs) a lot, but doing a lot of self-reflection and just sitting with it a lot, which at first felt like I was doing nothing. And I'm just so sort of action oriented that, that felt wrong. Right. And yeah, that, that just sitting with it and saying, you know, I'm going to try to accept this for what it is and, and see this, the strength and the opportunity and where I'm at right now, which was hard, hard at first, because all I could see were limitations and lost opportunities and things that weren't going to be the way I wanted. Like I like to travel. Mm-hmm. Traveling is really hard on me. 
I don't Um, travel well. Yeah. And the older I get, the worse it gets. And it, it's hard because the older I get also, the more means I have to travel. Right. (laughs) uh, So now that I could travel, it's so, so hard on my body. And I, I end up spending days recovering from, you know, if I have to fly somewhere, um, which then means I get very little time to enjoy what I do. So I've had to sort of say, okay, are big trips really the thing for me now? Maybe that can't be, or we need to extend them. So there is time for me to lay in a hotel room for two days when we get to our destination, um, which feels really crappy, honestly. For um, sure. But it's also been, I'm not going to berate myself and, and apologize to my partner for screwing up our vacation and being such a burden, which in the past I would have, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think all of us with chronic pain have grief and loss and trauma work to do. And I think it's just not talked about enough yet. And uh, that's one of my own personal missions now is to sort of open that door a little bit wider and and get people thinking about not only how does this impact us physically and relationally, but how does it, how does it really um, it become a source of trauma for many of us? And, and certainly a very big experience around grief and loss. Wow. Well, thank you for, for sharing all of that. I, I personally really identify with what you're saying because I went through a similar process of like extended therapy and having to come to terms with the fact that, you know, I'm a human and humans come with limitations and no amount of willing it to be different is going to change that. So, um, I think you're speaking to a really fundamental truth that a lot of people can identify with, even if they don't have pain, but especially if they do have pain. So thank you very much for that. Obviously from, you know, a, a patient perspective the you know, you've had to deal with doctors so much. What do you wish you could say to clinicians who treat pain? Ah, yeah. And, and just as a sort of context setting piece, I believe all physicians treat pain. Um, and I think some acknowledge that and see it and some don't realize they're doing it. And so that's, I think a really important piece. And, uh, my first big thing is that weight doesn't equal health. And, and that doesn't even just apply to those with pain. That's like a huge thing in our health system and in our world that are, you know, weight is so tied up with health and it's just, you know, so Hey, health providers do the work to like pull that apart and actually think critically about what we know about, you know, weight and health and how we can approach it in a way that it's not about, well, lose this many pounds and you'll feel better because we also know that sometimes doesn't happen. Sometimes the opposite happens. And often when people try to lose weight, they end up gaining more. Um, But also I think the other piece is just getting okay talking about pain and the realities of pain and helping people understand how pain works in their body. Like I've had to really do that on my own. Um, And thankfully I have met some brilliant people along the way who've helped me understand more and more about it. Um, And the more you understand your own pain, the more you can manage it better. Um, or at least meet yourself in a way that you're like, okay, I understand why I might be feeling really crappy today. Or I understand why there's nothing specific that I did to make this happen. Uh, and, and healthcare providers need to be able to go into that uncomfortable, often uncomfortable space of explaining what pain is, how it works. And they can't do that until they first understand it themselves really well. 
but also that doesn't always mean that you understand it. You can teach it. So I think, you know, if you aren't a great teacher or you don't have time in your practice to be that, find someone that you know, and you can refer people to or connect them with. Um, But also just find out like there's podcasts like this one. Um, There's lots of great like books. If you're, you know, working with patients, you might be inclined to read more about their pain, like learn about those resources that really are relatable from a patient perspective. rather than just the clinical, you know, like hauling out a journal article from New England Journal of Medicine isn't going to help most people paint. Right. Right. And so just like really figuring out how do I communicate relatably? And I think the only other thing I'll say is just that more comprehensive, holistic picture of people with pain, not just their pain, not just the underlying or lack of underlying condition causing the pain. Um, but seeing, okay, this person is grieving the loss of the relationship, the retirement, the job, the parenting role, whatever they never, they might never get to have. And, and so it makes sense that they're really struggling right now. And being able to just understand that a little bit, you don't have to become a therapist, but at least acknowledging and being able to acknowledge that with patients that, yeah, it makes sense that that's hard. You're losing a lot. You've had to give up a lot or it, there's a lot of unknowns. So it's really uncertain right now. So that's, that's scary. Um, but so often that emotional side of it is just not acknowledged. And, and then people feel like they're either weird for feeling these things and they struggle in isolation. And I think what we know about suicide rates and mental health problems among people's chronic pain, it's an ethical issue to not talk about it. Um, it's unethical. And uh, I feel really, really strongly about that, given that it's kind of a bit of a just sheer luck that I happen to still be alive today um, when no one ever talked about mental health or asked about suicide or acknowledged that I was clearly really struggling with some intense stuff. Um, and, and yeah, like it's that I think really is the big takeaway is even if you're not super comfortable or don't know all the answers, it's better to raise the conversation, raise the topic than to avoid it. Absolutely. And, and keeping it in, in line with that holistic perspective that you were explaining where you, you treat the person, not the pain. Um, it, it sounds like, uh, you know, your your identity as a fat person and as a queer person, you know, those are, are such important aspects of that holistic care, you know, that you, you can't create an environment where you avoid it. You have to be willing to uh, be open to hearing about those experiences in order to truly help people with their pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I honestly, you and I could keep talking about this forever. You, <laughs> you and I both know that. So I'm going to ask you one last question here. Um, and, and this could be a whole separate interview in and of itself, but because we're a Saskatchewan based podcast, let's end this by bringing it back to Saskatchewan. So, um, what would you like to see change in Saskatchewan regarding pain and pain care in a nutshell? Well, I think because we're pretty spread out in Saskatchewan, um, there's a sense that, you know, we need specialized pain care, which I think is true. Um, But the reality is, especially when I think back to me as a kid, um, that was pretty inaccessible and it was a pretty big burden, pretty big deal to drive to the city all the time, you know, stay in hotels, all that stuff. And so I really believe that 
all healthcare providers need to understand a little bit about pain. They don't need to be experts on it, but um, especially folks who are more accessible, um, like people you can see without an appointment, like a community pharmacist, right? That you may go see every month. They may see you more often than any other healthcare provider in your life. Ooh, good point. What could they be doing to help, you know, catch things, you know, and often they're looking at like med errors and, you know, they're very, but they're, they also have incredible skill in counseling and in other, you know, teaching about this stuff. And I, and I think, how do we equip folks like that, um, who are in some of these smaller communities and how do we also though, um, you know, look at folks like home care providers, right. Who, um, may be working with people that they recognize they have pain and they could be supported better in, in coping with that. Um, but yeah, I also think though that there needs to be a change in how we societally talk about pain and that pain is part of the human condition. Um, and it's, it's not some highly specialized thing. And that's been one of my biggest learnings as I dive more and more into the world of pain research is just realizing how deeply internalized I had the idea that I was the only one, how alone I truly felt, because it still surprises me when I am working with a team of, say, professionals, when I realize, you know, oh, like 60% of us identify as having chronic pain. Right. What the heck? And honestly, like, I try not to assume, and that's a big part of who I am, but like, I have still been shocked when people are like, yeah, yeah, I have pain and I'll be, you, what? Like, and I know better. Um, but I think that's just because like, it's still in our world. It's seen as this strange, unique, unusual experience. And it's actually so much more common than all of us understand, I think. And it, and we can do so much better at connecting people or having at least them feel less isolated in their experience. If it was something that people felt like it's another thing to come out about, really. Yes. You're coming right. out of the pain closet. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Pain closet. That sounds like a very interesting nightclub or something. <laughs> I see uh, like a, a queer punk band with all members who, who experience chronic oh, pain or something. Yes. We're going to start a band, Jessica. Yep. You and me, new yeah. drag act. There we go. Yeah, the pain closet. <laughs> well, this feels like a great place to end this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself. And I feel like it just ties it up in such a neat little bow because at the end here, you were talking about how you felt like you were the only one. And hopefully everyone listening to this podcast realizes that, you know, from stories like this, you're not alone. It's it's okay to be you and be in pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Erin. Yeah, thanks so much, Jessica. Thank you for listening to Your Partners in Pain, a podcast for people experiencing pain and those who help individuals living with pain. Funding for this podcast was provided by the Saskatchewan Community Initiatives Fund and the Saskatchewan Pain Society. For more information about our organization or to find additional resources, please find us on social media at saspain.com or visit our official website, www.saskpain.ca.